Jack, hello. Hello. Hi. We're back. Hi. It's a twofer this weekend. Oh my god. We're doing two to catch up. Deals. Uh, so this is the uh the next day for us, but immediate. I don't know. I'll put these out both at once, maybe. Miss Goosey. Yeah. Me. We we're we're sorry. Mm. We <coughs> moderately sorry. <laughs> Are you sorry. okay? Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to get all the liquids where yeah. they need to be. Uh, the the cottage cheese went down the wrong pipe. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, yes, <laughs> we, we had uh, programming disruptions over the last month, so we're trying to catch up. Um, we did the math at the end of the last episode. This is 101. 25 episodes uh, left of this, estimated. So we're going to power through. We will fit we are finishing the book. We're coming off of a a tight yeah. hot season of uh like getting married, going on our honeymoon, uh you going on tour, several to- and several other summer delights. So yeah. Uh but we're we're back in the set. We're back in the saddle, saddle again. again. Yes, we we should. I'm back. Looking forward to the next uh 25 weeks. Hopefully not met that many disruptions. And we're going to get this thing done. I don't, when does that take us to? Like May next year? Yeah. Something like that? Great. We can do that. Finish strong. Anyway, in retrospect, he's not being subtle with the uh, with the, the medicine thing, is he? What? The thing about it, uh, Pemulus's uh, sinuses feeling like a yeah, four-lane highway. But I, did, but I didn't realize it until we finished, until we, uh, you know, finished the passages and started talking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly didn't realize that even though I've read the book. Yes. Uh, There's yes. just so much. He, so here's the thing. This is taking forever to read, right? Yeah. It, so we, we we are able to digest it at a rate that is probably more appropriate to its density. When I read it, there was just so much stuff There's flying so much around stuff in my going mind. On, yeah. That I there was a lot that I missed. You're a fast reader. How long did it take you to read this when you first read it? Like a, I read it over winter break. So like sophomore year. So like two of, weeks or something? Yeah, like three three weeks. Winter break was long for college. You, you had a you had some kind of a sicko term, right? Yeah, we had quarter system. I forget yeah. how long oh, yeah. breaks were. Oh yeah, so sorry. No, we we had a month where yeah, um, a month to uh, find out what the communication style of the boyfriend that you had found the previous <laughs> semester was, and and uh, not being happy with the results. Uh, thanks, David Foster Wallace, for the distraction. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, three weeks. So I crammed it in. Yeah. I don't know. If I was to read this on my own, it would take me uh, about the same amount of time. The same amount of time. Uh, at least it would take me probably 14 months to read this. So I know I, I noticed something just opening the book up because as we did, the previous episode was just entirely an endnote bo- floating uh, a by itself. Endnote, a yes. dangling endnote. Is that uh, when Hal is asking um, whoever, Johnette Fultz, uh, edit house, for the schedule for AA, uh, he says he was wondering maybe he could have or borrow and Xerox and promptly return by either E or fax or first class mail. This man goes to young man goes to school at the top of the hill yes. where it's on the bottom. And he's like, can I just borrow it and I can send it back? I can mail it back to you. Yes. I just love the like total panic and terror yes. and, of like comportment at that time. Anyway, it's cute. Poor hell. All right. Let's let's move. Let's get, let's, let's do go. something else. Technical interviewers under Chief of Unspecified Services are the G time, which unfortunately takes us to end note 325, sorry. Whose theories of detection and interview are strongly informed by the B slash W noir films Tyne so enjoyed as a boy late at night on local broadcast television and misses. Back to the text. Uh, Tyne really do do this. Bring a portable high watt lamp 
and plug it in and adjust its neck so the light shines down directly on the face of the interview's subject, whose Homburg and shade-affording eyebrows had been removed by polite but emphatic request. And it was this, the harsh light on her fully exposed post-Marxist face, more than any kind of tough, noir-informed grilling from R. Tyne Jr. and the other technical interviewer, that prompted MIT, ABD, PhD, Molly Notkin. Everybody, welcome back, Molly Notkin. Who's the fuck is this? Joel's roommate. Oh, okay. Fresh off the NNYC high-speed rail, you wish. Seated in the Sydney Peterson-shaped directorial chair amid dropped luggage in her co-op's darkened and lock-dickied living room to spill her guts, roll over, eat cheese, sing like a canary, tell everything she believed she knew. Which takes us to Endo 326. Spill your beans! Uh, Endo 326. And then some. Back to the text. Molly Nockin tells the USOUS operatives that her understanding of the Après Garde Autour, J.O. Incandenza's Lethally Entertaining Infinite Jest, five oh, or six. Hey, that's hey, the name of the book. Hey, wow. Great. Is that it features Madame Psychosis as some kind of maternal instantiation of the archetypical, archetypal, archetypal? Archetypal. Archetypal figure, death. Sitting naked, corporeally gorgeous, ravishing, hugely pregnant, her hideously deformed face either veiled or blanked out by undulating computer-generating squares of color or anamorphosized into unrecognizability as any kind of face by the camera's apparently very strange and novel lens, sitting there nude, explaining in very simple childlike language to whomever the film's camera represents that death is always female and that the female is always maternal, i.e. that the woman who kills you is always your next life's mother. Okay. <laughs> Which I remember last time, uh, the um, never trust the father you you can't, never, never trust the, the father, father you, you can you, see. You never trust the father you can see? Yeah. The woman who kills you is always your next life's mother. Okay. Uh this, which Molly Notkin said didn't make too much sense to her either when she heard it, was the alleged substance of the death cosmology Madame Psychosis was supposed to deliver in a laylating monologue to the viewer, mediated by the very special lens. She may or may not have been holding a knife during this monologue, and the film's big technical hook, the auteur's films always involve some sort of technical hook, involves some very unusual kind of single lens on the Bolex H32's turret, which takes us to note 327. Bolex H64, 32, and 16 models come with a turret that accepts three C-mount lenses, which gives the models a kind of multi-eyed alien facial look. Alien facial? <laughs> <laughs> Back to the text. And it was unquestionably an FX that Madame Psychosis looked pregnant because the real Madame Psychosis had never been visibly pregnant. Molly Notkin had seed her naked, which takes us to note 328, <laughs> though never unveiled. Back to the text. And you can always tell if a woman's ever carried anything past the first trimester if you look at her naked, which takes the, the stand out 329, which is actually complete horseshit, but goes unchallenged by the OUS operatives who are pretty savvy at choosing their heuristic battles. <laughs> Back to the text. Molly Nakin tells them that Madame Psychosis's own mother had killed herself in a truly ghastly way with an ordinary kitchen garbage disposal on the evening of Thanksgiving Day in the year of the Tux medicated pad, four odd months before the film's auteur himself had killed himself, 
also which a kid also sorry also which a kid with a kitchen appliance why can i say that also ghastly which she says though any lincoln kennedy type connections between the two suicides will have to be ferreted out by the interviewers on their own since as far as molly not can knew the two different parents didn't even know of each other's existence okay that the lethal cartridges digital bolex h32 camera already a Rube Goldberg-esque amalgam of various improvements and digital adaptations to the already modification-heavy classic Bolex H16 Rex 5, a Canadian line, by the way, favored through his whole career by the Autor because its turret could accept three different C-mount lenses and adapters. Literally just heard that. Yes. That Infinite Jest 5 or 6s had been fitted with an extremely strange and extrusive kind of lens and lay during filming on either the floor or like a cot or bed at the camera, with Madame Psychosis as the death mother figure inclined over it, parturient and nude, talking down to it in both senses of the word, which from a critical perspective would introduce into the film a kind of synesthetic double entendre involving both the oral and visual perspectives of the subjective camera. Explaining to the camera as audience synecdoche that this was why mothers were so obsessively consumably consumingly drivenly and yet somehow narcissistically loving of you their kid the mothers are trying frantically to make amends for a murder murder neither of you quite remember okay <laughs> we'll discuss later this is very this is getting very freudian Molly Nockin tells them she could be far more helpful and forthcomingly detailed if only they'd switch that beastly lamp off or train it someplace else, which is a brass face falsehood and dismissed as such by R. Tyne Jr. And so the light stays right on Molly Nockin's glabrous, unhappy face. <laughs> glabrous. Glabrous. I don't know. What is glabrous? Mean? I don't know, but it, it makes it's, sense in context. It's provocative. Glabrous. I'll have to look up part. Will you look up partorient? P A R T U R. Well, let me look up glabrous. Okay, first. look up glabrous first. That Madame Psychosis and the film's auteur had not been sexually enmeshed and for reasons beyond the fact that the auteur's belief in a finite world total of available erections rendered him always either impotent or guilt-ridden. Have we talked about this before? That he's impotent? No. Go, say you have glabrous. Glabrous, chiefly of the skin of a, or a, a leaf, free from hair or down, smooth. A smooth face. Yes. And then partorious? Partorient, P-A-R... T-U-R-I-E-N-T. Parturient. I can't even parse the etymology. Of a woman or female mammal about to give birth in labor. Oh, man. Hospitalized parturient woman. That just sounds like he went to the thesaurus. <laughs> Did he really know the word parturient? Yes. Uh, anyway, what was that? That, that uh, uh, J.O. is... is is unable to complete the sexual. He thinks act. there are only a, a finite world total of available erections in the world. And oh, so, like, every so he's time, like Trump. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that in fact, Madame Psychosis had loved and been sexually enmeshed only with the auteur's son, who, though Molly Knock had never encountered him personally, and Madame Psychosis had taken care never to speak ill of him, was clearly as thoroughgoing a little rotter as one would find down through the whole white male canon of venery, moral cow- cowardice, emotional chicanery, and rot. I'm imagining her speaking in a, a mid-Atlantic accent, Molly Knock. Yes. Well, she is, like, she is a very fancy well-heeled grad student he was right? clearly as thoroughgoing a little rotter as one would find down through the whole white male canon of venery moral cowardice emotional chicanery and rot emotional chicanery yeah i've been guilty of emotional chicanery in my life all right 
What is chicanery? Sorry, I'm I'm, uh, like, I'm coming you up know, empty. Tom Foolery. Oh yeah. Well, who among us? That Madame Psychosis had been present neither at the auteur's suicide nor at his funeral. That she'd missed the funeral because her passport had expired. That nor had Madame Psychosis been present at the reading of the late auteur's will, despite the fact that she was one of the beneficiaries. That Madame Psychosis had never mentioned the fate or present disposition of the unreleased cartridge entitled either Infinite Jest 5 or Infinite Jest 6, and had described it only from the perspective of the experience of performing in it, nude, and had never seen it, but had a hard time believing it was even entertaining, let alone lethally entertaining, and tended to believe it had represented little more than the thinly veiled cries of a man at the very terminus of his existential tether, the auteur having apparently been extremely close to his own mother in childhood, and had no doubt been recognized as such by the auteur, who, though not exactly the psychic sees steadiest keel, had been in many respects an acute reader and critic of film, and who would have been able to distinguish the real filmic McCoy from pathetic cries veiled as film, no matter how wildly his nautical compass was spinning around on its tether, and would in all probability have uh, have destroyed the master print of the failed piece of art the same way he'd reportedly destroyed the first four or five failed attempts at the same piece, which pieces had admittedly featured actresses of lesser mystique and allure. Mm. Uh, I love that the entertainment is a, just, just a naked chick. <laughs> I mean... Nice. <laughs> I, I, I mean... You're not wrong. Yeah, he's not wrong. Yeah. That the auteur's funeral had purportedly taken place in the Lille province of Nouveau-Québec, the birth province of the auteur's widow, featuring an interment and not a cremation. That far be it from her to tell the U.S. Office of Unspecified Services its business, but why not simply go to JOI's widow and verify directly the existence and location of the purported cartridge? And it's uh, an ellipse. That it seemed pretty unlikely to her, Molly Notkin, that the auteur's widow had any connections to any anti-American groups, cells, or movements, no matter what the files on her indiscreet youth might suggest, since from everything Molly Notkin's heard, the woman didn't have much interest in any agendas larger than her own individually neurotic agendas, even though she came on to Madame Psychosis, all sweet and solicitous. That Madame Psychosis had confessed to Molly Nakin that the widow struck her as very possibly death incarnate, her constant smile, the rictal smile of some kind of thanatoptic figure, and that it had struck Madame Psychosis as bizarre that it was she, Madame Psychosis, whom the auteur kept casting as various feminine instantiations of death when he had the real thing right under his nose <laughs> and eminently photogenic to boot, the widow to be, apparently a real restaurant silencer type beauty even in her late 40s. That the auteur had stopped ingesting distilled spirits as Madame Psychosis' personal condition for consenting to appear in what she knew to be her, but did not know to be the JOI's final film cartridge, and that the auteur had apparently, incredibly, which takes us to endnote 330, given the guy's track record with ingestion, back to the text, kept his side of the bargain possibly because he'd been so deeply moved at MP's consent to appear before the camera again, even after her terrible accident and deformation and the little rotter of a son's despicable abandonment of the relationship under the excuse of accusing Madame Psychosis, psychosis of being sexually enmeshed with their. Here, Molly Notkin says that she, of course, had meant to say his father, the auteur, and that the auteur had apparently remained alcohol-free for the whole next three and a half months, from Xmas of the year of the Tux medicated pad to one April of the year of the trial-sized Dove Bar, the date of his suicide. I don't think I realized that he killed himself on April Fool's Day. That's funny. Yeah. 
Would it be a good Halloween costume for us if I just got a Cardinals jersey and you wore a white veil? <laughs> it's, but it's kind of a kind of a sicko, uh, you know, illusion. That, that relationship didn't end well, man. <laughs> it's true, but I mean, I'm just thinking of like what would be the easiest, funniest, uh, infinite jest uh, Halloween costume, and I think that that w- that would probably be it, right? I would love to don the veil. Would I have to? Would it be? Would I be making a mockery of the UHID? Uh. Well, it doesn't actually exist, so I don't think it's uh, Ooh, maybe a it problem. Should. Maybe it should. I can't, can you think of a better, quicker couple couples uh, Infinite Jest Halloween costume? Just te- just two tennis players. <laughs> I have a tennis dress. I could go as Ann Kitten. Wow, I could go as Ann Kitten playing with knuckle tattoos and uh, try to look scary. And maybe you have to uh, put on a mustache. <laughs> we could come up with something. Ooh, that the completely secret and hidden substance abuse problem, the one that had now landed Madame Psychosis in an elite private dependency treatment facility, so elite that not even MP's closest friends knew where it was, beyond knowing only that it was someplace far, far, very far away, that the abuse problem could have been nothing but a consequence of the terrible guilt Madame Psychosis felt over the Otora's suicide and constituted a clear, unconscious compulsion to punish herself with the same sort of substance abuse activity she had coerced the Otor into stopping, merely substituting narcotics for a wild turkey, which Molly Nockhead could attest was some very gnarly-tasting liquor indeed. Know that Madame Psychosis's guilt over the Otor's fellow to self, just to self, had <laughs> nothing to do with the purportedly lethal Infinite Jest 5 or 6, which, as far as Madame Psychosis had determined from the filming itself, was little more than an a la podrida of depressive conceits strung together with flashy lensmanship and perspectival novelty. That no, rather than the consuming guilt, had been over the condition that the auteurs suspend the ingestion of spirits, which, it turned out, MP had claimed in deluded hindsight, had been all that was keeping the man's tether raveled, the ingestion, such that without it he was unable to withstand the psychic pressures that pushed him over the edge into what Madame Psychosis said she and the auteur had sometimes referred to as, quote, (laughs) self-erasure. That it did not strike her, Molly Notkin, as improbable that the special limited edition turkey-shaped gift bottle of wild turkey blended whiskey brand distilled spirits with the cerise velveteen gift ribbon around its neck with a bow tucked under its wattles on the kitchen counter next to the microwave oven before which the auteur's body had been found so ghastlyly inclined had been placed there by the spouse's widow-to-be who may well have been enraged by the fact that the auteur had never been willing to give up spirits, quote, for her, Mm -hmm. but had apparently been willing to give them up, quote, for Madame Psychosis and her nude appearance in his final opus. Uh Mm Uh-huh. I'm just seeing if turkey-shaped wild turkey bottles actually exist. If it's not, it's cute that he invented it. It seems like something that should exist. what What do you see? I see postcards. I don't think these are quite. There is a wild turkey reserve called Rare Bird. Nice. Oh, it's got sort of a plumage. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh you know what it's supposed to be? It's supposed to be the, the Thanksgiving uh, the, turkey with like the the, the, the back fat, like the fully yeah. extended back, like uh, almost um, you know, uh, uh, uh proud turkey. Um, what are those things? The pretty birds with the big peacock. Uh, the peacock-like extension of the back yes. tail feathers. It, it, it doesn't have that. waddles, though. That, that's it does not. Foster it seems like that's something that should exist. Something from, like, the 70s. Yeah. 
that the, by all reports, exceptionally attractive Madame Psychosis had suffered an irreparable facial trauma on the same Thanksgiving day that her mother had killed herself with, with a kitchen appliance, leaving her, Madame Psychosis, hideously and improbably deformed, and that her membership in the union of the hideously and improbably deformed 13-step, deformed 13-step self-help organization was no kind of metaphor or ruse. That the intolerable stresses leading to the auteur's self-erasure had probably way less to do with film or digital art. This auteur's anti-confluential approach to the medium, having always struck Molly Nakin as being rather aloof and cerebrally technical, to say nothing of naively post-Marxist in its self-congratulatory combination of anamorphic fragmentation and anti-picaresque narrative stasis, (laughs) which takes us to the end of 331. Picaresque. Pretty obviously referring to the comic surrealist tradition of Bay Area avant-gardists like Peterson and Broaden, since Peterson's potted psalms, mother and death stuff, and the Cage's cranial imprisonment and disconnected eyeball stuff are pretty obvious touchstones in a lot of himself's more parodic slapstick productions. I have no idea if those things are real or not. Me neither. Uh, wait, so is it just revealed that uh, um, Joel is actually... According to Molly Nakin, that she has suffered. But Molly Nakin has never seen her unveiled facial facial trauma. It's yeah, she's show. Uh, Madame Psychosis is Schrodinger's hottie. Yeah, she you, can't, you, have you, no can't, idea. you have no idea whether she's hot or not under the veil, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I guess so. That's I mean, that's the wise the wiseness of of having it on. Yeah. Uh, Yes, because before it had been implied that the reason, the real reason she was wearing it is that she's so distractingly beautiful. Yes, that uh, that that it is. It is as if a deformity. Yes. It, it is affecting her life in the same way. Yes. Uh, yeah. We're, we are still right now floating on a tightrope of is she or is she not uh, <laughs> she hid- actually she. hideously deformed. Okay, great. Uh, back to the text. Or with having allegedly spawned some angelic monster of audience gratification, anyone with a nervous system who watched most much of his oeuvre could see that fun or entertainment was pretty low on the late filmmaker's list of priorities, but rather much more likely to do with the fact that his widow-to-be was engaging in sexual enmeshments with just about everything with a Y chromosome and had been for what sounded like many years, including possibly with the auteur's son and Madame's craven lover as a child, seeing as it sounded like the little rotter had enough malcathectic issues, malcathetic malcathected issues with his mother to keep all of Vienna humming briskly for quite some time. Wow. That thus, also uh, just pointing out, uh, Molly Nakin does not live by the G-code. She is uh, she is spilling the tea for these interrogators. You spilled your beans! You spilled her beans! Well, I she mean, did. this is the uh, enhanced interrogation unit. I mean, I would not I would not persist well under enhanced interrogation either. I think the enhanced interrogation is literally her sitting with a light sh- shining on her and her apartment. I, okay, I guess. But I know, I know what you mean. Like when they get out the rag in the bucket, you're like, uh, I'm like, you don't even have, look, you don't even have put to get away. that wet. Put it away. <laughs> you don't have to get it wet. Save you the trouble. Yes. I'm ready. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> that thus, with the Promethean guilt angle on the auteur's suicide cast into serious doubt, there was little question in ABD Dr. Notkin's mind that the entire perfect entertainment as Liebestad myth 
surrounded the pur- surrounding the purportedly lethal final cartridge was nothing more than a classic illustration of the antinomically schizoid function of the post-industrial capitalist mechanism, uh-huh. whose logic pre- presented a commodity as the escape from anxieties of mortality, which escape itself is itself psychologically fatal, as detailed in perspicuous detail in M. Gilles Deleuze's posthumous incest and the life of death in capitalist entertainment which she'd be happy to lend the figures standing up somewhere above the lamp's white fire, one of them tapping something irritatingly against the lamp's conic metal shade, if they'd promise to return it and not mark it up. I don't think I've ever read Deleuze? Deluge? How do you spell that? Deluge. D-E-L-E-U-Z-E. Deluge. That, in response to respectful but pointed requests to keep their responses on some sort of factual track and spare them all the egg-headed abstractions, Madame Psychosis is deforming, deforming trauma. Sorry, I'm but, buttermouth today. Deforming trauma, in its combination of coincidence and malefic intention, had been like something right out of the auteur's most ghastly and unresolvable proto-incestuous disaster films, e.g. The Night Wears a Sombrero, Dial C for Concupiscence, and The Unfortunate (laughs) Case of Me. That psychosis, an only child, had been extremely and heartwarmingly close to her father, a low-pH chemist for a Kentucky reagent outfit, who'd apparently had an extremely close only child and watching movies together based relationship with his own mother and seemed to reenact the closeness with Madame Psychosis, taking her to movies on a near daily basis in Kentucky and driving her all over the Mid-South for various junior baton twirling competitions <laughs> while his wife, Madame Psychosis's mother, a devoutly, a devoutly religious but wounded and neurasthenic woman with a fear of public spaces, stayed home on the family farm canning preserves, and seeing to the administration of the farm, etc. But that things had gotten first strange and then creepy as Madame Psychosis entered puberty, apparently. Specifically, the low-pH father had gotten creepy, seeming to behave as if Madame Psychosis were getting younger instead of older, taking her to increasingly child-rated films at the local cineplex, refusing to acknowledge issues of menses or breasts, strongly discouraging dating, etc., Apparently, issues were complicated by the fact that Madame Psychosis emerged from puberty as an almost freakishly beautiful young woman, especially in a part of the United States where poor nutrition and indifference to dentition and hygiene made physical beauty an extremely rare and sort of discomfiting condition, one in no way shared by Madame Psychosis's toothless and fireplug-shaped mother, who said not a word as Madame Psychosis's father interdicted everything from brassiers to pap smears, addressing the nubile Madame Psychosis <laughs> and progressively puerile baby talk and continuing to use her childhood diminutive like Pookie or Pooty as he attempted to dissuade her from accepting a scholarship to a Boston university whose film and film cartridge studies program was, he apparently maintained, full of, quote, nasty poodum wookie bam bams, unquote, whatever family code pejorative this signified. That, to cut to a chase with the interviewer's hand-on-hip attitudes and replacement of the lamp's bulb with a much higher wattage, (laughs) signified they'd very much like to see cut to. As is often the case, it wasn't until Madame Psychosis got to college and gradually acquired some psychic distance and matter for emotional comparison 
that she even began to see how creepy her reagent daddy's regression had been. And not until a certain major sports star son's autograph on a punctured football inspired more emailed suspicion and sarcasm than gratitude from home in Kentucky that she even began to suspect that her lack of social life throughout puberty might have had as much to do with her daddy's intrusive discouragement as with her actianizing uh, pubescent charms. A signed deflated football? Uh, yeah, because he, he punts so hard. Oh, okay. I He's, thought I was just picturing it deflated so you could flatten it and sign it. Oh, that that'd be, that'd be cool. <laughs> no, he. I think he just he he punched a hole in the Pun- dang football. No, you're gonna pu- you're kicking too hard. You're, getting, you're gonna get in trouble. You're gonna get in trouble. What One was of the funniest Kyle? God, no, Kyle, Kyle, you're kicking too hard. One of the funniest vines, most so inexplicable good. vines. The shit had hit the intergenerational psychic fan when Madame Psychosis brought the auteur's little rotter of a son home to the Kentucky spread for the third time for Thanksgiving in the year of the Tux medicated pad. And witnessing her daddy's infantilizing conduct of her and her mother's wordless compulsive canning and cooking, not to mention the terrific (laughs) tension that resulted when Madame Psychosis attempted to move some of the stuffed animals out of her room to make room for the auteur's son. In short, experiencing her home and daddy through the comparative filter uh, of enmeshment with the auteur's son brought Madame Psychosis to the crisis that precipitates speaking the unspeakable. And that had been at Thanksgiving dinner at midday on 24th November YTMP when the low-pH daddy began not only cutting up Madame Psychosis's plate's turkey for her, but mashing it into puree between the tines of his fork, all under the raised comparative eyebrows of the auteur's son, Then Madame Psychosis finally aired the unspoken question of why, with her now legal age and living with a male and retired from childhood's twirling and carving out an adult career on one and potentially two sides of the film camera, did her own personal daddy seem to feel she needed help to chew? Molly Knockin's secondhand take on the emotional eruptions that ensued is not detailed, but she feels she can state with confidence that it's plausibly a case of any kind of system that's been under enormous silent pressure for some time, that when the system finally blows the accreted pressures such that it's almost always a full-scale eruption. The low pH daddy's enormous stress had apparently erupted right there at the table with his grown daughter's white meat between his tines. (laughs) 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 And the confession that he'd been secretly, silently in love with Madame Psychosis from way, way back, that the love had been the real thing, pure, unspoken, genuflectory, genuflectory, Timeless, impossible, that he never touched her, wouldn't, nor ogle, less out of a horror of being the sort of Mid-South father who touched and ogled, than out of the purity of his doomed love for the little girl he'd escorted to the movies as proudly as any beau daily. That the repression and disguisability of his pure love hadn't been all that hard when Madame Psychosis had been juvenile and sexless, but that at the onset of puberty and nubility, the pressure had become so great that he could compensate only by regressing the child mentally to an age of incontinence and pre-mashed meat. (laughs) And that his awareness of how creepy his denial of her maturation must have seemed even though neither the daughter nor mother, even now wordlessly chewing a candied yam, had <laughs> remarked on it, the denial and creepiness. Although the man's beloved pointers were given to whimper and scratch at the door when the denial had gotten especially creepy, animals being way more sensitive than humans to emotional anomalies in Molly Notkin's experience, <laughs> had raised his emotional limbic system's pressure to near intolerable foot-kilo heights, 
and that he'd been hanging on for dear life for the past nigh on a decade, but that now he'd actually had to stand witness to the removal of Pookie and Urgelbear et al. <laughs> from her Urgelbear. From her ballerina wallpapered room to make space for a non-related mature male whose physical vigor through the peephole the daddy'd exerted every gram of trembling will he'd possessed trying not to drill the hole in the bathroom wall just above the mirror over the sink whose pipes made the wall behind the headboard of Madame Psychosis's room's bed sing and clunk and through which late at night claiming to mother a case of the skitters from all the holiday nibbles hunched atop the sink every night since Madame Psychosis and the auteur's son had first arrived to sleep together in the unstuffed animaled bed of a childhood through which he'd been all by tortured by the purity of his impossible love for the... Cuts off. <laughs> that it had been at this point that Madame Psychosis's mother's fork and the then whole plate had clattered to the floor and that amid the sounds of the pointers under the table fighting over that plate, the mother... Uh, dogs yes i figured you'd know that uh just confusing when they don't reference the word dog uh fighting over that plate the mother's own denial systems pressure blew and she freaked announcing publicly at the table that she and the daddy had not once known each other as man and wife since madame psychosis had first menstruated that she'd known something incredibly creepy was going on but had denied it it evacuated her suspicions and placed them under great pressure in the bell jar of her own denial because she admits admits is probably less accurate than something like keens or shrieks or jabbers <laughs> that her own father, an itinerant camp meeting preacher, had molested her and her sister all through childhood, ogled and touched and worse, and that this had been why she'd married at just 16 to escape. And now that it was clear to her that she'd married the exact same kind of monster, the kind who spurns his ordained mate and wants his daughter. That she'd said maybe it was her, she, the mother, who was the monster, which, if so, she was tired of hiding it and appearing falsely before God and man. That whereupon she'd reeled from her place and hurdled three pointers and run down to the daddy's acid lab in the cellar to disfigure herself with acid. That the daddy'd kept a world-class collection of various acids in Pyrex bland, brand flasks on wooden shelves down in the cellar. That the daddy, the rotter of a son, and finally a shock-slowed Madame Psychosis had all run down the stairs after the mother and hit the cellar just as the mother had removed the stopper of a Pyrex flask with an enormous half-eaten-away half skull on the side, which, along with a flaming scarlet piece of litmus paper afloat inside, signified an incredibly low pH and corrosive type of acid. That Madame Psychosis's real name, uh, name was in reality Lucille Duquette, and the daddy's name, either Earl or Al Duquette, of extreme southeast Kentucky, way down near Tennessee and Virginia. That, despite, I don't, I don't think, I, knew, I didn't know that. I guess we've only referred, Joel. Yes. So it's Ju Lucille Duquette, Joel Van Dyne, Madame Psychosis. <laughs> uh, that, despite the little rotter's professions of self-recrimination for allowing the deformity to take place, and claim the swirling systems of guilt and horror and denial-informed forgiveness made a committed relationship with Madame Psychosis increasingly untenable, it didn't take an expert in character disorders and weaknesses to figure out why the fellow had given Madame Psychosis the boot within months of the traumatic deformity now did it. That right on the hysterical cusp where internalized rage can so easily shift to externalized rage, the mother had hurled the low pH flask at the daddy, who'd reflexively ducked, and that the rotter won Orin right behind, a former tennis champion with superb upper body reflexes, had instinctively ducked also, 
Leaving Madame Psychosis, dazed and Brady kinetic from the sudden venting of so many high-pressure repressive family systems, open for a direct facial hit, resulting in the traumatic deformity. And that it had been everyone's failure to press any charges that had liberated the mother from Southeast Kentucky custody and allowed her access once again to her home's kitchen, where, apparently despondent, she committed suicide by putting her extremities down the garbage disposal. First one arm, and then, kind of miraculously, if you think about it, the other arm. <sighs> well, I think I have to officially uh, bump up incest as one of the main themes of this book. Yeah, it's interesting that he's so interested in it, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so when people ask what is Infinite Jest about, I would now incest I would jest. say <laughs> I would now say uh, it's about addiction and Boston and incest. Uh, hold on, I'm taking a bite of cottage cheese. Yes. Poorly. Um. Okay. Let's let's talk about this. Addiction, tennis, Boston. Incest. Because I feel like he's trying to do it. He's trying to go like Freudian, right? Yes. Like, which I don't. Okay. I've never read Freud in the original. The Phallic Flames. The original German. Have I t- but I remember. <laughs> have I talked about You talked about the Phallic. I know the Phallic Flames. Yes. Um, And then, you know, did he basically just take, take Oedipus and Electra like too seriously? And then there's like oral fixations and yes. like stuff like that. So I, like, I'm not sure where we stand on where the the scientific community uh, stands on Freud. And dreams, right? The dreams. The unconscious. The the subconscious. Ego. The, sub, id, the subconscious. Ego. Id. Super ego. That's all him. Yeah. Okay. I assume that the my assumption that the 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 where the intellectual community stands on Freud is like you know the the. The first guy to kind of pinpoint being like, hey, damn, humans really do seem to be obsessed with sex, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> In like a very uh, like deep hardwired level. Yeah. And that, yeah. And that it has, it's not, it's to do with things that they don't even like understand. Yes. Because th- so to me, this is all kind of swirling together in a, in a, um, a, a trifle like layered pudding of, uh, like dreams, subconscious, the unconscious, egos, parents, mm-hmm. right? And it's being mediated in this case through movies, which the movie sounds dreamlike, right? It almost like movies are dreams. Movies are movies more are dreams. On, more on dreams this are in movies. A, more on this in a year or two. Wait, oh, oh in what way? Uh, I mean, I guess I I, I can tease it here. Avatar two. No, I've I've come up with a, a concept for um a, a a history series. Oh yes, right. Beyond uh, the Thirty Years of War series, for anybody who follows me over on, on that on that thing, that which has not yet come out, and it has to do with movies and dreams. Yeah. Okay. Great. I'm I'm excited for this. And history. And history and technology. Mm-hmm. Which is all the same stuff we're talking about right now. It's all the same thing. The especially like they they keep talking about this lens that's like special that it sounds like mm-hmm. elsewhere in the book they talk about it being wobbly. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds like something that's basically hypnotic, right? Yes. Again, taking you out of a state. You could even say that the entertainment is taking you out of a conscious state and, and putting into you a into state, an eternal dream. Eternal dream, and the dream is a dream, not a nightmare. Yes. And why would you want to wake up from that? So, like, on one hand, is it a little weird that, like, every parent in this is a pretty much a sexual <laughs> abuser other than J.O. and Condensa? Yes. Who is, who is only abusive in, in so, who is also abusive insofar that he is completely narcissistically self-absorbed. Yes. Uh, yeah, I guess it's funny. I guess you, you ask who's the bigger monster in the Incondensa family, and I would probably say Avril. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to me, the, the fact that uh, 
J.O. has the best relationship with Mario it suggests that he's not a bad guy. He's just, he might, there might be a bit of the puzzle piece to him. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he has a touch heard, of the puzzle piece. Uh, if, after the um, the Chapo show, I, I don't, hopefully that's not inappropriate of me to say. I was quoting I someone that fine. I spoke to um, after uh, after the Chapo show uh, who referred to uh, himself as having that. And I thought that was pretty fun, a pretty funny way I, to say I it. Think it uh, <laughs> I, th- I think it is. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's pull back from that because I, I I definitely don't need to uh, uh, delve into whether James Owen Condensa <laughs> isn't abusive because he is autistic. <laughs> that seems, unfortunately, it's a bit of a hairy. That's territory. a bit of a hairy territory and completely out of my depth. Uh, forget I said anything about it, honestly. Uh, but, but do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's a real, there, there's like two levels of this incest stuff. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm glad you heard that phrase at the Chapo show. Oh that, yeah, uh, that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about trains uh, and, <laughs> and how and how we both and how we both love love trains and how it's unfortunate that there's not that much like fast train tra- travel out of New York. Um, <laughs> this all all tracks zero percent surprising yeah. any of any of this. So okay, so like the incest in this case seems to form two things. On one hand, it's like the actual salacious details are something that he does appear to take pleasure in trying to describe in these really grotesque. It's not, he's not glamorizing it. He's truly trying to find the ways to be the most grotesque about it. And grotesque in a very like clinical way. Yeah. Clinical, but then also like, like tragic comic. Like, I mean, we think back to the, um, the girl who's speaking in AA, whose sister, uh, was being diddled by her father and wearing the Raquel Welch mask. We've got Avril. We've got um, fucking uh, Pemulus's father abused Pemulus's older brother. I think also uh, when we think about what the fascinations are in, in this book, the uh, ideas of circular narratives, recurrences, I think that there is something to the uh, recurrent nature of generational trauma. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, that's what I was literally just thinking about. That is that where you were going with that? Yeah. The thought? Yes. Wait, go, go on. Yeah. Well, that's just what, that, well, you, that it's like these that. They tend, at least in his cosmology, and you know, in real life, that they they tend to re-perpetuate and, yes. and ripple through, uh, you know, generations, yeah. years of, yeah. of of family, uh, and ca- cause even if you try to avoid the trauma of your parent that caused you, you end up inflicting a new tra- type of trauma. <laughs> but, uh, Oedip- hey, new trauma just dropped. Oedipus Rex was a documentary. <laughs> uh, yes, I. I- I completely agree, and it's not like he's excusing these people for it, but like what the, the the essential problem that I feel like he's trying to get at is that when you become alienated from life, mm-hmm. if you are poor, like uh, if you are sick, if you are um, addicted to stuff, if you grind, and your if you're knee, abused, if you grind your knees to a nubbin on an Ill, on an ill-fated slide, on an ill-fated on a tennis, slide, uh, if your fa- if your grandfather was a drunk and then your father was a drunk and then you're drunk. If you become alienated from life, you you are cursed, literally cursed, to repeat that in the yeah. people that you then bring into the world. And so it's everyone's job to a figure out what happened before you, and then figure out how to fix it. Which brings me to my concept of like the unanswered question, which I'm definitely stealing a little bit from. Um, oh goodness, who was the guy who um, uh, who killed himself? Aaron. Um, the like ha- kind of hacker tech guy who oh made Schwartz. yes Aaron Schwartz yeah uh, I'm stealing from his theory a little bit which we can do at the end when we actually finish this in six months um, that uh, oh why why did he make the entertainment yes 
what what is he trying to who is he trying to communicate with what what is he actually trying to say with the entertainment he's got supposedly a naked chick who's embodying death and say explaining to you as if you were a child from a height in this wobbly lens that's like giving you you know get, making you all woozy and stuff that your mother your mother murdered you in your past life and both of you are trying to she's apologizing for a crime that neither of you remember who is he who is this for his kids for Avril for his wife for Joel wait does Aaron Schwartz have a theory on, uh, yeah. on this does, a big, uh, did yeah. he has a big infinite jest like that I, yeah that I I I uh I at least think it's interesting and it's definitely one way to read it uh hmm I guess put a pin in it. Yeah, because every you know. I did not. I oh, didn't okay. Know that Here, he was a, here's one more. Here's one more thing to just keep track of. Joe, we've read his filmography. Still one of my favorite episodes. His output is so unbelievably like random and like so again alienated from life. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's these technical tricks. It's these um, uh, like weird jokes, anti-confluential stuff where people come in the audience and they realize that they're the movie. He's uh, really cerebral. Uh, hi, yeah, cerebral, high concept uh, B pictures. What yeah. What is the bye-bye to the... Uh, Way bye-bye to the bureaucrat. Yeah. Um, And then also like uh, genre films that are so unbelievably bitterly ironic about the genre that like they sound almost unwatchable. Yeah. And so, and then this, this... This thing sounds, on one hand, it sounds incredibly pretentious, and Molly Notkin was pulling the pretension out of it because she is a, a graduate school freak. All but dis- dissertation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All uh, but, I, I, I like that little uh, jab of ABD Dr. Notkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she's pulling <laughs> that out, but you could argue that he is trying to make something earnest, mm-hmm. uh, sincere, dare I say, and why, why would he have that change in his filmography? Because he got sober. Mm-hmm. Put a pin. Put a pin in why it would be confusing whether or not he would have relapsed on um, the day on the day that he committed suicide. Okay, that that's all I'll say. Uh, Hamlet is a. All I'm just saying is that Hamlet is a play about someone getting murdered. <laughs> think about it. Okay. Chew it. Chew it around. Then think about it, and then and then let it leave your mind. Uh. So the assertion is that uh, he was murdered. Maybe maybe he didn't maybe he didn't kill himself. Maybe we get we get into a little Epstein uh, action. <laughs> Jo didn't kill Jo incandescent in didn't kill himself. Uh, actually, br- bringing up Epstein did did David Foster Wallace just see the world as it actually is, which is like this patriarchal hellscape of like uh, abuse from powerful to not powerful people. Because <laughs> he's centering it in like a specific type of Boston universe. Yes. But did he, did he have an idea of the bigger picture? After all, this is about the continent. I mean, is this book fundamentally cynical or is it uh, like, oh, I guess, I, I mean, I guess we have to get to the end because there is a lot of cynical stuff in here. But I think that also, you know, a lot of the examinations of, of individual people are like wildly empathetic, mm-hmm. uh, even if they are, you know, ironic, detached in certain ways, Yeah, you know, kind of judgmental in the way that like yeah. you know a lot of it, it, judgmental but not in in a mean way of just like kind of being very matter of fact matter of fact about like strengths the, and weaknesses yes, and also like the behavior of like addicts and stuff like that which, right yeah which right. tends to to i think 
uh, he fairly honestly portrays drift into the absurd. Yes, of course. Uh, Randy Lenz uh, yeah, yeah. running, screaming into the night with his tailcoat flapping after yes. murdering a dog. Uh, yes. Um, I don't know. A lot, lot of stuff. A lot of stuff coming together. The, <laughs> it is funny to do the device of of being like, okay, here we are, eighty percent of the way through the book. Uh, better just do a scene where somebody points an increasingly bright light at a marginal character and they dump exposition <laughs> at you. <laughs> but somehow doing it like as related to the plot yeah. and in the like voice of Molly Knockin. Oh, so good. Yes. Um, the post-Marxist fashion. Oh my God. Oh my God. The guy's hat? It's, he's got the Pharrell hat, but for an old white tennis guy. We're watching an old US Open match between... T- Actually, I don't even know if it's old because Nadal's balding in this, which... Yes. Nabald, <laughs> Raphael Nabald. Uh, let's see. I think we went up to thirty-seven. So we did about ten minutes of discussion here. Anything else? We just did two this weekend. So uh, you know, no, yeah, no major out. life updates. No. Hopefully, we'll get one in for Miami next week. Hey, we went to a concert uh, at a tennis. Um, oh, we did. We went stadium. to a, yes, we went to a concert. We saw King Gizzard in the Lizard Wizard and Black Midi at the Forest Hills Tennis uh, Stadium, which is a great place to see concerts. Uh yeah, it's incredible. If you if you're ever in the Queens area, <laughs> check it out. Uh, I was looking up at the board. They the the booking is so funny. They oh, who did they have? They had not the Almond Brothers band, John Fogarty or something. They had some like person that I was like, wow, I haven't thought about you in a while. Uh I think Bill Burr is doing a was doing a set there. Interesting. Um it's great. Uh and then pro tip Go to a concert at the Forest Hills uh, Tennis Arena, and then a- afterwards get a uh, get a beer and a table tizer platter at the the Forest Hills TGI Fridays. I'm people are sleeping on the Forest Hills TGI Fridays. My fun my fun fact of that is that there was a push a few years ago during what I think I I think matches as the girl boss era yeah. of like 2014 or 15. Uh, TJ Fridays put out a uh, marketing push that said the Forest Hills location is one of our co-working spaces. Yes. Come here, bring a laptop, order order a plate of mozzarella sticks and like a coffee or whatever and work all day. We have Wi-Fi. We have comfortable tables. We won't kick you out. <laughs> you can <laughs> like we, we promise we won't bother you. And they did it for a couple years. And I do regret not visiting to see if I could co-work there. Um, but they seem to have calmed down into a regular style TGI, TGI Fridays. Fridays. New York's hottest club is the T- Forest Hills TGI Fridays. Uh, TGI Fridays, they s- I tried to order a small beer and the server said, it's only a dollar more for a beer that's double the size. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to go to the bathroom, so we're going to have to cut this one short. <laughs> Bye. Goodbye. Bye.